The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, France feels the force of a credit downgrade slashing frenzy. Yes, Friday the 13th proved to be a horror show for the EU. Nine countries, including France, saw S&P take an axe to their ratings. And this week, the bailout fund was itself downgraded. Meanwhile, talks on the latest Greek rescue faltered. So, is the Eurozone losing the battle to save its weakest members and its currency? Also this week, what if the debt just disappeared? We talked to one of the leading thinkers behind the Occupy movement, the author and academic David Graeber. The thing about debt is it doesn't only cause you terrible problems, it does it in a way that's utterly humiliating. I mean, basically these people have... They saw bankers as people who destroyed their lives, they'd wrecked the economy, and left them in the situation where they had this enormous student debt and no prospect of jobs, but it was being held out that it was their fault. This is a Business from The Guardian. Joining me in the studio this week, I've got The Observer's economics editor, Heather Stewart, and down the line from Paris, our correspondent, Angelique Chrysophis. Welcome to you both. Some might say it's been long overdue. But last Friday, Nicolas Sarkozy was taken down a peg. The credit ratings agency, Standard & Poor's, told him that France's prestigious AAA rating had been lost. Not only that, but it also downgraded eight other Eurozone neighbours. Now only Germany's left as the big Eurozone economy with a AAA credit rating. And even the bailout fund has seen a cut to its credit score. Angelique, let's go to you first in Paris. From the way France has reacted to this downgrade, you'd think it'd gone through this massive tragedy. Is that really the way it seems on the boulevards? It's been absolutely massive, especially with, if you compare it to the way the US lost their uh, rating and, and didn't and seem to carry on as normal. Basically, in October, Nicolas Sarkozy made the mistake of saying that uh, if France loses its AAA, I'm dead. And that pretty much defines the way he felt about the whole thing. France, about a year ago, people in the street in France didn't really know what AAA was. They weren't that interested. But Nicolas Sarkozy basically picked it up and said, AAA, it's all about that. If we lose this rating, we will not be able to have our social model. France, as it exists, will collapse. You know, I am the person to defend it. And this was part of his election strategy to, to try and say that he was the only man that can steer France out of the economic crisis. Now, that, of course, has come back to bite him now. And he's in real difficulty. And how has it changed things for the opposition? Because we're coming into the first round of presidential election. Well, basically, yeah, we're only three months away from the first round. It's a problem for everyone, really. I mean, it's a problem for Nicolas Sarkozy because it's destroyed his strategy of being this great economic protector. And he's now trying to, he's going to try and put forward a rush of economic reforms at the last minute to try and fix France's problems and plug the hole in its security deficit. That's quite a tall order, I have to say. It's not brilliant either for Francois Hollande, who's the socialist front runner. He, all polls say he'll win the election, but it's going to be very tight and not easy for him because, of course, he's a great social democrat who's very serious about fixing budget deficits but of course when you lose the AAA rating France's budgets are going to be very tight he can't make great promises to redistribute wealth or to hire more teachers which he's trying to do so it curbs him as well and then you've got Marine Le Pen from the extreme right who of course is laughing and saying I told you so but her economic policy is very questionable and, and, and it's something that the voters don't hugely trust her on anyway so it's basically cast a very sombre mood on the election. Heather Stewart, let's bring you in. Does this, that, that's the politics there from Monique, but does it make much difference to France's economic prospects, a, a downgrade? 
Well, not necessarily in the sense that, that um, as Angelique mentioned, we saw the US downgraded last year and actually its cost of borrowing didn't shoot up. And, and you know, France's bond yields didn't shoot up yesterday, which have suggested would have suggested that the markets have suddenly lost confidence. I think it's more that it, it sort of undermines its, its position relative to Germany politically. But I think economically, and I suppose it also, as Angelique suggested, it sends a strong signal that there isn't the money around that there used to be, that it's not going to be as easy to carry on as before, you know, so it, it, it probably makes fiscal austerity look more necessary sort of internally, domestically, but it doesn't seem to have led to a very sharp increase in, in its borrowing costs. And one of the big implications of the downgrade is that the the Euro bailout fund has now lost two of its six AAA countries that were meant to be pledging credit for it. So not just France was downgraded, but Austria too. How does that change things for the EFSF, the, the bailout fund? I think it changes things radically. I think the two things that happened on Friday, the France, the downgrade of France and Austria, and secondly, the collapse of the Greek talks, really uh, completely undermined the whole package that, that Eurozone ministers have put together to, to try and sort of shore up the currency, really. The EFSF, the, the plan was to, to leverage it, as, as the parlance goes, which meant that it was going to have to borrow in financial markets, so to persuade investors that they want to sort of buy a stake of the Eurozone bailout, as it were, uh, which was guaranteed by France, Austria, Austria and others. Uh, the fact that it was, that was already a, a kind of dangerous, shaky promise and, and countries like China and Brazil and so on had already looked a bit sceptically at this idea. But the fact that it now hasn't got a AAA rating, I, I think has really blown the EFSF as an idea out of the water, really. And at the same time, the collapse of the Greek talks, which is meant to be a sort of an essential component of, of the latest Greek bailout, which the country needs by March, the collapse of those talks with private sector creditors undermines that part of, of the deal. So I think the whole sort of future of the single currency yet again is looking incredibly shaky now. Honestly, let's bring you in one more time. Nicolas Sarkozy seemed rather to enjoy being one of the two co-pilots at the front of the Eurozone. Him and Angela Merkel leading this big rescue mission for the, for the troubled peripheral countries. How does this downgrade affect his position against Germany? Well, it affects him massively, and that's something that French people are really worried about because, of course, they, they've always been worried that France was following in Germany's slipstream and, and that Merkel was telling Sarkozy what to do. Of course, France now, with this... this credit rating downgrade isn't in the same league as Germany. So there's various things going on here. First of all, it puts France in a very difficult position at all these international talks, which Sarkozy loves to present himself at. But it also affects the way France um, has always used Germany as an excuse to, to, to try and do sort of bitty reforms, which Sarkozy has done. So he said, now, come on, we need a little bit more budget cuts because we have to be more like Germany. And of course, what it shows is this gaping gulf between France and Germany. And one thing Sarkozy always dreaded was to be lumbered in with the club med countries of the southern Europe. He wanted to show France could be in with the northern biggies and Germany, particularly with its sort of perfect running of its economy compared to France, of course. And now he's starting to look, you know, being downgraded on the same day as Spain, for example, he's starting to look like France really isn't in Germany's league. Heather, let's just go to the reasons why SNP downgraded France and eight other Eurozone nations. He said austerity was now becoming self-defeating. Is there a kind of... Um, a lesson that British policymakers can take. How does that feed into the British political debate about austerity? Yeah, I think there's very much a lesson here. Uh, there was a really interesting blog that went out the other week from the chief economist of the IMF, Olivier Blanchard, and his line, that the, the expression he used was, was that bond markets are schizophrenic 
about austerity. And I think that's exactly right because, you know, what governments right across Europe have been doing, they think, is is sort of sating the bond market's desire for ever deeper spending cuts. And actually, you know, investors, yes, do want to see that the fiscal situation is under control, that there's a plan, but they don't want incredibly deep recessions right across the eurozone because, you know, that means you then have to spend more money on unemployment benefit. You don't get the tax revenues you thought you were going to get. And actually, as we've seen in Greece, the deficit position has got worse and not better. And, you know, of course, we've now seen George Osborne, who, who you know, is right at the forefront of this sort of cult of fiscal austerity. He had to stand up in the autumn statement and say, well, you know, actually, I'm going to have to keep doing spending cuts now until 2017, until after the next election, rather than being able to eliminate the structural deficit by the end of this parliament, as I promised. So, you know, there's a pretty strong argument that that he would blame the eurozone downturn, but there's a pretty strong argument that that, that austerity is already becoming self-defeating in that way in the UK. And, you know, we're not on the hook for bailing out our, our neighbours as the eurozone countries are. So we're not nearly as vulnerable to a downgrade. But we do have to face up to the fact that at some point, the bond markets might start to have another look and, and feel a little bit less confident about us too. There, I mean, there are actually two crucial differences between Britain and the eurozone. One is that we don't we're not tied into the same currency. We don't have to bail out Greece. And, and we Portugal. have our own central bank, of course. And we, we have our own printing press, which <laughs> yeah, makes indeed. life a, a bit, bit, bit easier for us. Indeed. We can get them to buy our bonds. Yeah. But do you think there is a real risk that Britain could be downgraded? If I were to say 2012, year of the British downgrade, would, would, you, would, you, you know, would you shy away from that? I'm sceptical about it. I think you would need a very deep downturn in the Eurozone and a very deep recession here. But I don't at all think it's impossible. I think if you, if you had another uh, mass series of sort of downgrades of growth forecasts, you know, if it started to look as if we were going to have a long, deep recession, um, then, you know, you do have to wonder where the growth is going to come from after that. And you do have to worry about the fiscal situation. Um, and the other question is, is the banking sector. And, you know, we did a, a, a very radical bailout of our banking sector at the height of the crisis, you know, but were the eurozone to collapse, for example, or were one or two countries to, to, to fall out of it, you know, our banks might well look vulnerable again. And, and you know, gosh, if all George Osborne has to go back and, and bail out the banking sector again, then, then you know, all bets are off. Final question. It's really an attempt to try and impress you. My, with my pet theory. You don't need uh, to do that. <laughs> as Professor of Economics and Observer, Heather, let me, yeah. run, let me run this theory by you. Um, Angelique was saying there that Nicolas Sarkozy made a big deal about the credit rating about France's AAA. He's not the only one. George Osborne went into the general election saying, judge us on whether we've protected Britain's credit rating. Absolutely, yeah. Barack Obama, during the debt ceiling talk, said, look, if this carries on for much longer, America stands a chance of losing its debt, its AAA, which it did. Um let me run this by you. Do you think there's a risk that the AAA rating will come to be seen a bit like a strong currency used to be seen by political leaders as a kind of totemic thing, a kind of symbol of national virility, when actually in the future we might be much more relaxed, just as we are about weak currencies, about having slightly lower credit ratings? Because we'll be forced to, because we're in an era of austerity where actually you know, governments do need to borrow more. You're right that a strong currency isn't necessarily a good thing. It's it's a bad thing. But I, I'm not sure the extent to which even now politicians have kind of woken up to that. But um, yeah, I think you're right, because in a way, you know, if if the US is no longer AAA and, and Austria is no longer AAA, then in a way, 
you know, as one analyst said to me on Friday, double A becomes the new triple A, you know, and, and there was this weird era where you had a thing uh, which was known in the markets as the risk-free rate, you know, the borrowing cost for the US was known as the risk-free rate as if it were risk-free. Well, of course, n- n- no loan is risk-free, no borrowing is risk-free and no borrowing is completely without cost. So um, you're right that may- maybe, you know, the cost of borrowing needs to be sort of factored in more openly up front and, and yeah, maybe, maybe it's not going to be a disaster. It certainly hasn't been a disaster for the US and it doesn't seem to be a kind of talismanic issue as far as I can tell in, in the, the US presidential campaign, which you might have thought that it would be. Perhaps it will come into play more later on. But, you know, you don't hear the Republican candidates saying, you know, good God, Obama's ruined this economy because we haven't got a AAA rating. You hear them saying, look at unemployment, look at slow growth, you know. I think I'll take that as a triple B rating on my theory. Oh, no. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm super impressed. <laughs> thank you very much, Heather, and thanks on your league in Paris. There's plenty more on the crisis in the Eurozone on our website at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. Now, according to no lesser source in the American Dialect Society, the word of 2011 was occupy. The words debt and crisis must have run it close, but hey, there's always this year. In the studio now, we're lucky to have a man whose recent work encompasses all three of these terms. David Graeber is one of the key thinkers behind the Occupy movement and author of an influential new book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. In it, he puts forward the radical idea that 2012 should be a jubilee year. Not one, alas, in which we have a whip round and buy the Queen a £60 million super yacht, but one in which we cancel all debt and start fresh. David, I know your book covers 5,000 years of debt, but let's get right to the end chapter where you suggest this wholesale cleaning the slate with regard to debt. Explain what you exactly mean by a debt jubilee. Well, it goes back to a tradition, begins as early as 2500 BC in in Mesopotamia, where periodically when you have too much of a social crisis, everyone is too indebted and society looks like it's on the point of breaking down, they would declare a clean slate. Basically, all debts, usually other than commercial debts, uh, would be cancelled and um, essentially just start from scratch. And it strikes me that it wouldn't be at all a bad idea right now for various reasons. Um, One, for obvious practical reasons, we are in a very similar social crisis, and um, it would really help a lot of people's lives, but also just conceptually. I think you know, we're in a period now where we're, we're using an antiquated idea of what money even is. Uh, we think still thinking of it as a thing, as a commodity, when really uh, it is increasingly a set of promises as an IOU or social relationship. Um, and it'd be a way of bringing home to people that money is something that we create, and um, these are promises that we make to one another. And when situations change, promises can always be renegotiated. Now, what you're suggesting, and I know that you say in the book you you throw it out more as kind of a, a provocation than as a, as a fully fleshed out policy, but what you're suggesting goes really runs very sharply against the way we have actually approached this debt crisis. Governments, it's consumers exactly opposite, yeah. have, have all been told actually they must concentrate on paying down their debt. I know it's remarkable, and and it's it's remarkable even if you think of it from a purely economic perspective, let alone one of common decency, because economically, I mean, nothing could create greater moral hazard on the part of lenders than you know saying that all debts must always be repaid. Because what's to keep you from making idiotic loans? The entire purpose of a financial system is to guide investment towards sensible loans. Fine, <laughs> but let me try and argue against you for a couple of minutes. First of all, back in Mesopotamia. The, there was one person or one entity doing all the lending. 
Well, no. I mean, there was there's quite a number actually. But it was the state. Well, the state was involved, but it wasn't just the state. It was um, it was administrators, administrators working for the state. It was merchants. There was a class of people who had money. Okay. If we normally had... they were plugged into the state in one way or another, but that remains the case. Okay. Okay. All right. Good concession. If you were to, if you were to think about twenty first century, a lot of us may be up to our necks in debt, but we also often have savings too. So we, we have multiple identities. That makes a, the concept of a debt jubilee, seductive though you make it sound, that makes it much more difficult to pull off this time around, doesn't it? Well, I think that's what we're seeing in America. I mean, if you look at the juxtaposition between the Tea Partiers and the, the, the Occupy people, I mean, the Tea Partiers are mostly middle-aged people who have a certain level of investment. We're saying, no, we're not going to bail anybody out. And the Occupiers are people who are mostly young people who are saying, we have no prospect of having lives if you don't. But that's to take a very polarised view of them. The tea parties may well have kids who are going for university and presumably going up to their neck in debt. True, but they're largely the ones who can pay for it. I mean, the profile is largely middle-aged white suburbanites. Okay, okay. so let's get away, let's get away <laughs> from the, 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 the caricature of class interests in America. Okay. But think about Britain. Okay. There are an awful lot of people, you know, you teach at Goldsmiths College, the parents of your, the, your pupils, presumably, have also gone into debt to help their kids go through college. Quite a number of them, yeah. And at the same time, presumably, they're also looking forward to a retirement payout from their pension funds. So just go with me. Let's just assume that we all do have multiple identities, both as savers and as borrowers. How on earth do we go through a debt jubilee? Well, I think we have to bear in mind that... that Again, like when a bank lends money, it's not money it already has. We have this sort of stereotype that this is some grandmother's pension being lent out to mortgages. But, you know, as we all, we fall back on the stereotype, despite the fact that we know it isn't really true. The vast majority of the money that's lent out is money they just made up. It isn't going to destroy granny's pension necessarily to um, reconfigure these things. And again, um, any jubilee wouldn't be absolutely universal. They weren't even in Mesopotamia. There would be ways of configuring it so that the most vulnerable don't get hurt. How central do you think the issue of debt is to our current political struggles? I think it's remarkable. I think it's it's utterly central. This is why I wrote the book, because I was working with the global justice movement for years, and everything seemed to revolve around debt, whether it's the third world debt crisis, whether it's some um, deficit financing on the nation state, consumer finance. And, and I realize that no one's ever really written a history of it before, which is remarkable in itself, because there's really very few things that no one's ever written a history of. So I, it was because of that centrality, and not only that centrality, the incredible moral power. I would have these conversations with people, very liberal-leaning, well-meaning sorts of activist types even occasionally. And, you know, you talk about the third world debt crisis and the terrible destruction and death of babies and all sorts of terrible things. And, you know, and then they say, well, what's your solution? I say, well, cancellation. I say, but wait a minute, you, you can't. I mean, people have to pay their debts. And this is, this is, you know, under what other circumstance would this person be approving of policies that will cause the deaths of thousands of babies? None. But something about debt has this terrible moral power over us. Anyone listening to this can take up this challenge and they can Google your name and they will find very high up immediately, uh, David Graeber, heavily involved with the Occupy Wall Street movement. One of the criticisms made of the, of the Occupy movements, whether in Wall Street in London or all over the place, is that no one's very clear on what their demands are, or if they have any. And I know it's a big a source of big argument with yeah, the well, Occupy movement, whether you should actually have a, a, yep. a, a, a set of demands in the first place. But 
Can you can you conceive of popular protests directed at taking up the objective of a debt jubilee? Well, there have been throughout. Actually, it's quite interesting. I was just reading something by Peter Leinbaugh, the radical historian, saying that there's been a huge history of popular protests specifically demanding a jubilee, at least back to the 18th century here in the UK. I think that that is one of the major things that people in the Occupy movement have been talking about. And from the very beginning, I mean, when I was involved in helping to organize before the actual occupation, I was sort of living two lives because I was working on the activist, my, my activist hat, and then I had my book promotion hat. And I was trying not to get them too mixed up. But it was hard not to, because every time I would give a talk about debt, if there were any young people in the audience at all, two or three would come up to me afterwards and say, do you think there's any possibility of creating a movement about student loans? It was just everyone had the same reaction. I mean, people are just swamped. Their lives are being utterly destroyed. And and it's the thing about debt is it doesn't only cause you terrible problems, it does it in a way that's utterly humiliating. I mean, basically, these people have they saw bankers as people who destroyed their lives. They'd wrecked the economy and left them in the situation where they had this enormous student debt and no prospect of jobs. But it was being held out that it was their fault. You know, despite the fact that they had studied hard, played by the rules, done everything they were supposed to. A lot of them were working class kids, managed to get into college, found themselves totally indebted with no place to go. Meanwhile, the Wall Street guys who hadn't played by the rules at all, trashed the economy, got bailed out. And now they were looking on them saying, ha ha, you losers, <laughs> you're a bunch of deadbeats. <laughs> Just to go back to the Occupy movement for a second, this argument about whether to have demands at all uh, and how to develop the movement, where do you stand on that? Where to I think it's really important to maintain the idea of creating an and maintaining an autonomous space. This is the reason why we so strongly resist the idea of creating a leadership structure that could convey demands of creating demands at all. Because by doing so, you're saying, well, we ultimately wish to integrate ourselves into the political system. The power of the movement has been its willingness to say, well, this system is utterly corrupt. I mean, we've changed the language so that we no longer call things by their proper names, but you know, if you want to do any sort of old-fashioned sober analysis, I mean, the American political system is a system of institutionalized bribery. I mean, that's what it is. Average American politician spends 95% of their time soliciting bribes. They call them contributions. And why we are calling this democracy, I have no idea. And, and the the reason why this took hold when so many previous movements that did have demands and did try to play the lobbying game didn't is is that very thing that we said, look, there's no working within this system. To make demands of these authorities is saying that we recognize them as legitimate. I think it's their turn to prove to us why they, they we should consider them legitimate at all. The argument would be that if I may play the, the role of the old leftist here, the argument would be that you then get end up you call it autonomous space, I call it process, and you end up becoming all about process and not enough about obje about objectives. This is this is this is a dilemma. Obviously, it, this can happen, um, but there are scenarios whereby you can create really dramatic political change without either trying to seize power or to make specific pressure around specific. On political demands that you want others to enact. One way is the very process of delegitimization. Uh, we saw that in Argentina in 2001, they essentially delegitimated the entire political class. They couldn't even go to restaurants without people throwing food at them. Um, at a certain point, and this is happening in Greece right now, it's beginning to happen all over the place. People like that do recognize they have to do something radical simply to be able to legitimate the very idea that the political process exists for a purpose other than self-aggrandizement. 
that would be one solution. Another one is to create some sort of process. Um, the Zapatista model of the San Andreas Accords is a great example, where you have something that you are negotiating, perhaps a constitutional amendment is one idea that people have been throwing out. And you can use that as a way to foster the democratic process where you negotiate back and forth across the political divide. Um, there's other ways as well, local initiatives, a host of different approaches that could be done. And I think this is things we're, that are being hotly debated at this moment. And there are all sorts of different visions for how we can interface, um, how we can ally with groups that do interface with the government, even though we don't. There's no reason not to work with people who are you know, because there's no lack of people with all sorts of interesting programs. Um, the problem has been nobody's been listening to them. We create enough of a fire on their left, people will start. So I don't think we're the ones who have to come up with the program. You know, if things work as they should, there should be a synergy where both of these things reinforce one another. Our liberal allies can make sure that we don't get arrested and brutalized. We can make sure that somebody pays attention to them. <laughs> the other, I mean, the other great criticism would yeah. be that your talk about horizontal protests and an autonomous space is really very interesting, but you're working within a system which, as you point out, is the opposite of that. It's vertical, it's driven by vehicles, whether left or the right. You can say that they're horribly corrupted and all the rest of it, but there are also good people and good, good sub-movements within that. Mm-hmm. If the movement for greater social justice is to have any contraction, then inevitably there's going to have to be a bit of coalition building. Yes, I think there's, as I say, there's there can be a lot of synergy. There doesn't have to be a formal coalition. Um, and I think that's where people make the mistake. There's no reason that we have to, you know, create a formal process of linking that we have to ourselves go out and campaign for people. That doesn't mean that there's ways we can't work together to common purpose. But, but let, that firewall is extraordinarily important because it has been observed time and time again, I've seen it, that the moment that you create a formal interlink between yourself and vertically organized groups, it starts to corrupt your own process. And that ultimately isn't to, the, to anybody's benefit. I, I, can, I can buy that. But let me give you a vision from a kind of proto-Occupy movement, which is the one in Syntagma Square in Athens where you have an awful lot of young people who are completely turned off by organised politics and for very good reason. You have also have some leftists of a sort of recognisable stripe. And because you do not have a mainstream political vehicle in Greece, mm-hmm. you have a very important, vibrant movement in Athens and in other places in Greece, but they have no real formal channel with which to, you know, to go down. And so this leads to frustration. And this has been going on for over a year and they can, you know, they have they have the process, they have the autonomous space, they have all the rest of that. They also actually have a fairly good idea about what the sort of things they, might, they, they would all agree on, but they have no means of making that happen. It's a problem. I mean, uh, on, on a national basis, well, at the moment, there's been effectively an anti-democratic coup in Greece. Um, now, I'm not sure that it didn't having be, a vehicle would have... It didn't need to be that way. Now, what, what would be your scenario for uh, well, how well, they could have avoided I, that? Simply, I'm, I'm I, would, I, would simply, I would simply say that, just as an observer who's just been into Greece a couple of times over the past year, that you notice there was a huge amount of sympathy for the people in Stagman Square from people who would never, never dream of going to sit in tents or to protest. The same thing could be said about Occupy London, from my experience here, is that you get an awful lot of sort of parents of, you know, university undergraduates who would say, oh, I totally agree with what those people in St. Paul's, you know, are, are on about. But because there is no formal way for them to express their uh, uh, allegiance with them and because there is no vehicle as such. Well, this is the big problem is that what we've seen over the last 
30 years, really, across Europe and North America, pretty much across the world, has been a systematic dismantling of anything that could serve as such a vehicle, of any sort of community groups, of local groups. And rebuilding that is going to be a very time-consuming task, but you have to start somewhere. And I don't think it's going to be done from top down this time. Uh, I mean, we're not going to have, you know, party groups and so forth creating their local societies in the same way that, like, socialists and other leftist groups or right-wing groups, for that matter, did, you know, in the 70s. And all of that stuff was really dismantled in the 80s and 90s in so many places that it's it, there's been an attack on the very principle of community, let alone of political community. We are starting to rebuild that, but it's not something that can happen overnight. I mean, the miracle of something like Occupy Wall Street was that suddenly we have 600 different sympathy occupations in two months. But you can't, you have to start to begin to rebuild a democratic culture. It's going to take years to really let it undo the damage of the last 30 years. In the meantime, you've got an American election next year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what happens to Occupy Wall Street in that? That's really interesting. And and I think it's, it is to our advantage, ironically, that um, it's really hard to imagine anyone getting excited around the choices in this upcoming election. I mean, people will hold their nose and vote on one side or the other. The Democrats will hold their nose and vote for Obama. The Republicans will hold their nose and vote for Romney. And um, no one will like their choices very much. And most other people will simply sit home, presumably. I think that the great danger would be an election in which people did get excited would distract a lot of energies. And I guess mercifully for us, um, there's not, I don't know about the country, uh, there's really no chance of that at all, I think, this time around. I mean, the media will try to distract attention. It'll have a great deal of effect on on our coverage, I think, once the sort of spring offensive begins, as we call it, um, once it's warm enough to set up start, start setting up camps again. Just mm-hmm. just for, just for mm-hmm. British listeners, yeah. at the moment, there is actually no, no occupation. Well, there's a bunch of occupations. In, in, in New York, there isn't. Right. We have effectively a space which we use not to sleep but otherwise the way we use the old space um, oh, it's 60 wall it's this giant atrium with this very peculiar architecture that looks a little bit like the Alhambra. It's a corporate space, but it's also public-private. It's, it's, it's actually yeah. a bank lobby. If it's yeah, but it's it's about the largest bank lobby ever. Um, it's a, well, practically a square block. And, and you occupy a lot, <laughs> go and sit there and discuss their ideas. Yeah, and, and we have uh, there's all the rest of it. five or six working groups at any given moment. Um, we have various other spaces. So you're, you're all mm-hmm. sitting in the lobby of a big bank. Yeah, we're occupying Wall Street. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so come spring, you're, you're planning to what? To um, well, we have very various plans and I'm Many have not been concretized. We're just bouncing them around. Obviously, even if we did have very concrete plans, I couldn't necessarily go into detail about them. But there's all sorts of different things in the offing, yes. Well, if the occupiers really are heading back to tents, what books do you think they ought to be taking with them? What should they be reading? Well, I mean, one of the lovely things about occupations is they tend to have libraries of, of thousands of books. I always like to say that um, in a way the library is our model of an alternative economy because it's an economy based on something of a shared value that um, is lent out with no interest and returned again, uh, entirely on trust. But in terms of the books, well... There's such a range. I mean, if you're just talking about economics, um, there's a remarkable um, outpouring of alternative economic views, ranging from sort of world systems, Manuel Wallerstein sort of thing, which I think is still quite relevant, um, to everything from the neo neo or post-Keynesians, people like Michael Hudson, Steve Keen, I think are very useful, or even Dean Baker, for that matter, um, a little, you know, uh, pro-capitalist for my taste, but um, (laughs) nonetheless, very prescient. Yeah, you occupy 
you've really got to grow up and understand what markets are about. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Well, that's what he keeps telling us. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it's worth reading the arguments. But but I also believe you know in there's all sorts of very interesting visionary literature, whether it's everything from someone like Boaventura de Sousa Santos talking about uh, self-organized economics or political structures, J.K. Gibson Graham, and you know, sort of feminist alternative economics. I really sometimes think the visionary literature is the most important. And David's excellent book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, is out now from Melville House Publishing. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to David Graeber and earlier to Heather Stewart and Anjali Crispis. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.